This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Allison Skinner Dorkinu, a social psychologist and researcher on why social attitudes and biases are so contagious. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Allison. Thanks for having me. How do social attitudes and biases start? There are lots of which of ways in which they can get started. My work has specifically focused on subtle cues that we would be exposed to in our environments, especially focusing on nonverbal cues. So that is referring to the way that we might observe the way people interact in our environment and seeing who they seem more warm and friendly toward, who they maybe seem less warm and friendly toward, and also other sorts of cues of perhaps signs of respect, signs of value and importance. So there's lots of ways in which we communicate information about the other people around us and that other people who observe our interactions can be picking up on that and gathering social information and determining who is liked and valued and respected and so on within a society. So if someone we feel warmth to or respect for, we're more likely to pick up that person's social attitude? Certainly, I would expect that to be the case, that if we already, that we would be more likely to catch the attitudes of people we like and feel close to than people that we don't like and don't know very well. There's that people will catch attitudes from people they don't know. It doesn't have to be a person that you know and feel warm toward. And it could be somebody you read about that you may have respect for. Yeah, and it could even be a stranger that you are watching on television. There may be some sort of value placed on being in media or being on television, but it doesn't necessarily have to be someone that that you have particularly strong feelings about. That's why we have actors who have become presidents, because we have felt warmth and credibility, right, in them. What are the most common subtle social nuances or situational cues that we may be picking up and not being aware of? Pretty subtle things like uh, whether somebody is making eye contact with another person, whether they are showing a more genuine smile when they're interacting with them. This is actually something I'm looking into with some new work of what are the cues that we're using when we're trying to discuss how somebody feels about another person and we're sort of observing an interaction. What are the cues that most powerfully suggest to us that they like them and feel warm toward them? And it's things like that. It's the the genuineness of the smile, whether they're making eye contact and other also things other things about the eyes. So whether the person's scrunching their eyebrows together. So that's generally associated with a frown. That's a negative cue. If you see someone doing that, you're less likely to think that they feel positive toward the person they're interacting with. And you might be more likely to catch a more sort of negative attitude toward toward their interaction partner. So if I wanted to influence someone, I would smile and have eye contact. And I'd be more likely to pass on the social attitude or whatever I may be trying to pass on or convey? 
So this would be if somebody was observing your interaction with another person, they would be more likely to to uh, feel positively toward that person you're interacting with if they observed you doing those things and giving off those cues. Interesting. Does the source matter or is it the stickiness of the way it's being conveyed? Based on what I do know, I would say that probably both matter. That this was a little bit related to what I was saying before. For example, I've done some work with kids and I and I do think that even though I've found that kids will catch attitudes from just adults that we expose them to in our laboratory, that they would presumably be more likely to catch attitudes that their parents show. Um, so sort of a very close, highly respected and valued adult. But also it matters how strong the cues are. So if we show a really strong reaction, then that might be more powerful that we would be more likely to catch it. And some more recent work that I did suggested that. So we were looking at whether kids would mimic these kind of cues. So the idea was sort of like if kids were watching an interaction and they saw someone display negative nonverbal signals toward another person, showed that same facial expression while they're watching the interaction, they show a bit of a grimace or a negative facial expression while they're watching, that that was particularly sticky or powerful when it was negative. So if they observed a positive interaction and mimicked that, it wasn't nearly as powerful as if they watched a negative interaction and they were sort of mimicking that with their own facial expression. So it, it suggests there may be something particularly powerful about negative. The negative cues are more likely to be picked up. We have some evidence that suggests that. It sounds like social attitude biases are highly contagious, especially if they're negative. Yeah, I think certainly in psychology more broadly, in social psychology, we have evidence that there is a negativity bias, that when we get negative information about something, and this would also apply to nonverbal cues, that that's perhaps a bit more powerful or potent in shaping our attitudes than positive information. And is it more prone by adults or kids to these attitudes? I guess the question I should rephrase it and say and ask you, are children or adults more prone to these biases? Or equally? You know, I haven't uh, done sort of a direct test. It's a bit hard to compare kids and adults because you, you expose them to slightly different things. But I've found essentially pretty comparable findings with studies with adults and kids. So it certainly isn't a thing that, that only happens with children. Kids will catch the biases, but adults will too. And what's kind of interesting about that is that even with adults, when we ask them what shaped their attitudes, where they got their attitudes, they're not aware of where they got them. So that's kind of interesting because it's it's happening even when we are not consciously aware and maybe we even are pretty sure that that the behaviors of others are not influencing our attitudes. But when we when we test it experimentally, we see that yes, they they certainly are impacting people's attitudes and people tend to think that other things are influencing them, but not that. People could be doing something and you're not processing it directly, yet you're still picking up those cues without really telling yourself 
that you're aware of those cues. Yes, absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. People will observe an interaction. And even when we explicitly ask them, did the way that person was treated have any impact at all on your attitude? Relatively small proportion of people even said it could have contributed to their attitude. And then they were much more likely to say that lots of other things impacted their attitude than that, which is the thing that we found actually did systematically impact their attitude. So it's the nonverbal signals that were directed toward an individual. And is it because we're prone to judge or label? That's probably part of it. I think that it's pretty efficient way of processing social information if we think about what would just be an adaptive process for humans to have that we can really quickly gather a ton of information by just we could walk into a room with a whole bunch of people we've never met and we can gather a great deal of information by quickly observing the interactions and not even necessarily having to consciously process and think about well, it seems like this person doesn't like this person and therefore I should feel this way. You don't actually even have to like consciously go there. Your mind's just gathering all of these details and coming up with this sort of information, telling you all sorts of things about a social hierarchy, about who's liked, about who is important, about who you should trust, all of these kinds of things based on observing the interactions between other people. Is it more powerful in person or is it just as powerful if you're on the social media platforms or if you're watching a movie that some kind of bias built into it? I've only tested this essentially what would be analogous to like a social media platform. I've I've investigated this on video, so I haven't actually examined how people react to live interactions. I would imagine they would be impactful. It's just a lot more complicated to control sort of a live interaction in front of people and systematically measure it in an experiment. I've only looked at it on video and that's where we've systematically seen this. So it certainly does apply to that kind of thing that people would be picking up these types of attitudes and biases by watching videos on social media or in movies. So I was reading that people are more likely to believe medical advice on Facebook than from real medical professionals. What kind of bias do you think is happening here? It's certainly possible that people are getting cues within their social context that medical professionals are not trustworthy. That could be coming from things related to my work of actual interactions, of watching people interact with doctors. But we could also think about other ways in which social cues are used. So, for example linguistic biases of the way that we talk about other people and the the words that we choose and the way that we phrase our sentences are another way that we can really subtly communicate attitudes and stereotypes and all kinds of pieces of information that are relatively implicit, that it's something that is not obvious part of the message, but is conveying a level of So, for example, a really easy way to think about this would be like the titles that we use for people. And so, for example, you know, when we refer to someone by their, so if we referred to someone as Dr. Blah, 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 that's showing much more respect for a person versus if we referred to them by their first name or if we just referred to them as like, hey, you, (laughs) 
there's ways in which we can subtly be communicating this kind of information also in the way we would talk about people on social media or talk to people. And so there certainly could be lots of subtle ways in which communication is going on that perhaps reflects a level of disrespect or mistrust or um, something along those lines uh, with regard to medical professionals. So it sounds like it could come across as casual, but it could be disrespectful when you look at it at a deeper level. So we must choose our words wisely. Yes, I think that's a good way of putting it. It seems like there's a lot of social bias influencing how people are perceiving COVID-19 right now. Let's see, what do you mean by social bias? You have people who believe that mask works, and then you Ah. have people who don't believe that mask works, (laughs) which is very odd, right? You would think that it would be clear it either works or it does not work, but there's such a spectrum of biases tied to this and very strong opinions about this um, issue, which is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think that certainly it has become rather partisan. So there, it's being sort of tied to these group identities, which people value often and find to be sort of really important and core to their sort of who they are. That's going to uh, make it more powerful. Like once it gets tied to a group identity, then it's like you can signal your identity by wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. But then we can also think about the way that would be reinforced through various things like like nonverbal signals, where I certainly have been wearing a mask in places where no one else was. And it was very, uh, like, there was a lot of nonverbal signals that I was aware of, um, of, you know, them, of whether or not people were looking at me, the way that they were interacting with each other, the way they were interacting with me, that there was a ton of cues going on. And it certainly one person is doing the deviant behavior and it's associated with identity and all that. There's there's lots of social messages and attitudes being conveyed in those contexts. That's interesting because if you're wearing a mask and no one else is, it's almost like you're the odd person out and everyone's looking at you. You can almost feel what they're thinking. <laughs> right. Like, why are you wearing a mask? You know, no one's wearing a mask here. I can only imagine, even though they're not saying it, you could just feel all the thoughts that must be going on. What kind of spreadable attitudes or biases are you seeing taking place during this pandemic? Are there certain themes that seem more prevalent right now? Yeah, well, I mean, when I think about this beyond this sort of like mask um, and that sort of identity and, and group issue, there's certainly also issues related to racial biases going on. And we've heard that explicitly in terms of the way that the president has the terms that he has used to refer to coronavirus, trying to link it to China, but also in much more implicit ways where we could think about, I mean, I I have certainly heard a number of cases of people of Asian descent being particularly concerned in some places to wear masks. There's this heightened anti-Asian bias, but then on top of that, there being this added cue associating you with the virus when you're wearing a mask. So then it was compounding the bias and the stigma for you to be having this additional cue of wearing a mask. 
So it's like doing the safe thing actually maybe puts you in danger. What's happening is we have people who have been boxed by one group as, you know, something that's tied negatively to this COVID. And so they're being affected by this negative perception by another group that's out there. And then we have just COVID itself that's like dividing people as to what exactly is safe or not, depending on the group identity, right? And Mm -hmm. is there anything else that's happening? It's related to what you were just saying, applies to lots. So if we think about, there's been a ton of news coverage of racial disparities in the who's getting infected and who's dying from COVID-19. And uh, we can think about how that is also another cue that all of these news stories bringing up the story, and not to say that we should not be covering it, but I think that there may be some unintended consequences when we think about these repeated pairings of putting people of color and members of racial and ethnic minority groups, pairing them with talk of the virus and, and bringing up these racial disparities to the extent that then we would expect at a psychological level that that is going to increase the association that people are going to have between people of color and COVID-19. And that certainly could be leading to biases. This is something that we're hoping to look at in my research team. Certainly, we could predict that based on what we know about the way people form attitudes and biases. That's such a good point, because the news is considered a credible source And it is queuing people up to think negatively because most of news is negative. People are building in this negative cue on a daily basis almost, right, on these Mm -hmm. topics that they keep covering over and over again. Then we all now have, oh, well, hopefully I don't. It sounds like a lot of people now have these negative cues in their head about various groups that that are tied to the current pandemic and what's going on with them that may be impacting them negatively. But then that in itself is reinforcing people's negative views about them. Yeah, that's the possibility that that we're predicting might be going on and that I think needs some empirical testing, but certainly seems likely that something like that is happening. So what can we do to change our social biases and from spreading them? So I think that one thing that we could be thinking about. This is certainly not something that I would call solved in any way. Raising awareness, bringing our attention to along the lines of what we've just been talking about, that if we recognize what the things are that are shaping our attitudes and think about that within the, the bigger picture of So maybe going beyond just the headline that says racial minority groups are associated with increased COVID-19 infection and instead uh, sort of going beyond that to, to think about and learn about why that is the case. Why is that happening? What are the systemic factors that are leading to that? and contributing to this. So it's learning about the history and the societal context and the system. So it requires some effort. I don't know that any of this is going to be a very like passive, easy strategy that you can just sort of sit back and let it happen. You have to sort of actively work against it because you're getting all of this information that is coming into you very easily that is going to lead you to the bias 
conclusion. And that's the easy way it's going to take you there. And if you don't want to go there, or if you want to get away from there, then it takes effort to educate yourself about the broader context and history and so on that led to to where where we are and what the where you are acquiring these attitudes. That's a really good point. Like you have to ask the questions of where it's coming from and what led to this. Could you mm-hmm. use empathy as a tool in this case to get out of your social bias? Certainly, that's been something that has been advocated for in lots of intervention type things like this. So I think that that would be an added element that I would think of in terms of what I was just suggesting is not only thinking about the bigger system and the history and all of that, but then also thinking about, okay, and understanding all of that, you know, what must it feel like to be in that position, to be the person who is, you know, a member of that group and is facing these systemic challenges and oppression and so on. And what would that feel like? What would that be like? So that's an added level on top of evidence suggests that that would be an added layer that would also be helpful. That requires the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, which isn't always easy to do, right? Right. (laughs) I was thinking it's an art in itself to be able to really go deep into what someone's experiencing and be able to say, wow, you know, I can't even imagine what that would be like if I were in that person's shoes and certainly help dial down our social biases. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's part of why I think about the history and the systemic context, because I think oftentimes if we just go directly to empathy, we go, well, it's me, who I am in shoes that I've lived in my whole life and the the privileged position that I have had in this society it's very, very hard for me to actually imagine um, in any way what somebody who, if somebody who's had a really different experience is like. And so if I'm looking at, I'm, I'm not able to move myself out of my vantage point. And I would say that we never really can, but I think that we can get closer. We can attempt to do so when we're more aware of that broader context and we're not just in our perspective and going, well, I would never do that, and not having really any awareness of what that bigger picture is that shapes someone else's experience and why they might feel very differently or behave very differently in a context than you might. It sounds like the key is to get out of your own perspective. That's definitely helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing your research today on Spark. It's been really insightful. Thank you for having me.